Good afternoon. I show that video when I speak because I think you need to know, you know, who's speaking to you, where they've been. And, um, and I think that there's a message in my life that applies to anyone and everyone, male, female, white, black, rich, poor, we've all had to overcome something in our lives. And I applaud you all for being student activists. And I applaud um, uh, Michelle for having the vision to start this program. And uh, I thank uh, Camille for being the person <laughs> that, you know, that I've been interacting with. And there are other people that are responsible, the donors, and just everyone that's made this possible. And Michelle, when you had this vision many years ago, I'm sure you didn't know that the society was going to turn into what it's turned into. And so today, we're in a safe space. And it's OK. <laughs> this is your safe space. Like um, many Christians, and I'm going to start off with, with my testimony, because that's a part of my story. Uh, I was not born uh, and raised in a family that was religiously devout. We didn't go to church, but my great-grandfather had been a Methodist pastor. And so I did have some church experiences, but um, I did not become a devout Christian believer until late in my life. And this was after I had been tenured uh, at Princeton. At one time, I had three children, two sons that are alive, and I had a daughter. And in my early 20s, um, and my children, I had the first child at 17. By the time I was 20, I had three children. And I can remember walking with uh, one strapped to my chest, one on my back, and one by the hand. And, um, and, and during that time, I had no idea. And when I was doing those suicide gestures where I was taking the bottles of pills and making sure I got rescued. Um, and even though the video says that I really wanted to die, I don't think I really wanted to die because I was very skilled at getting rescued. Don't try that at home. It worked out for me, but um, it, for me it was a cry uh, for help. And as a young child, I was always different from my siblings. And there were 12 of us, and uh, I was second from the oldest. And I always had a sense and some of you feel the same thing, that there's something you're supposed to do. And I'm looking at a young lady now that was at my table that's from New York. Will you stand up and, for a moment? I mean, this lady, uh, this young lady, she has a strong uh, call on her life. But I just knew, you know, that there was something I was supposed to do. I felt that tension that now, as a Christian believer, I can recognize as the call. And in my late teens, early 20s, and certainly after I started the community college, I had strangers come up to me and they, say, they said, someday you're going to be famous. Well, there was nothing about me or what I was doing at the time that that made any sense at all. And now that you know I'm so visible, and by the way, I've had three viral PragerU videos. And, um, and you know, I've been just things that I never imagined uh, has happened in my life. But I had no way of knowing that I even had a future. And when I was doing those suicide gestures, I couldn't see that I would go to college. All of that came later after my children. And 1975, um, my uh, daughter died of a crib death. She was about three months old, and um, 
and that was a turning point year for me. Uh, my child died. I had been involved with Jehovah's Witnesses, and they uh, said the world would come to an end. And, you know, like they're a cult. And if you're part of that, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm being of a trigger warning. Sorry. <laughs> uh, but I was involved with that, but I decided to leave. And they were telling everyone that the world would end in 1975. And by early 1975, I didn't care when the world was going to end. My relationship with them ended. Um, my child died. I filed for divorce. I took a job outside the home. My world changed in 1975. 1976, I started the community college. And um, never, ever thought I'd be a university professor. All I wanted was to be able to have a job where I could support myself without a man's income. That was important to me because I'd been in an abusive relationship. And so there were times I wanted to leave, but I felt like I couldn't afford to leave. And there were times I was abused and I was so ashamed. I didn't tell many people because I knew that I was more intelligent. I should have been smart enough not to stay in that situation. I didn't really want people to know. And I felt like I couldn't afford to, to leave. So, my little heart's desire was to be able to support myself without a man's income, and that led me to go to the community college. I really, really wanted to be an artist, a commercial artist. That's where I have talent. I was told to be practical, and so I studied business, and my first degree was in business. The second one, criminal justice. Uh, the third, I have two in political science, a master's and a PhD, and then uh, I have a master's in law that I got after I had been a professor. None of that was planned by me, but it was clearly planned and orchestrated by God. And I can look over my life to see how he ordered my footsteps, bringing people into my life. They would come in, they would exit. And, uh, and so I was really steered along the path. And the reason I'm telling you this is that there's nothing special about me. We all, you're at the beginning of your journey, but you're gonna have all kinds of experiences and some of the things you think you're going to do, you're not gonna actually do that. You're gonna do something different, uh, you know, something better, something greater, but it's gonna be different. And so if you're going to college and you think you're gonna be um, a lawyer, it might turn out that you become a university professor or you might, uh, you know, become uh, a scientist or or you might become an engineer, or you might become the next president, who knows? Because by the time you all are old enough, uh, having a woman president would not be that unusual. And so uh, there's so many things that will happen to you that you don't know about. And sometimes um, you get energized by circumstances. And I speak uh, you know, from a recent personal experience. Uh, I've studied politics all of my life, now I'm running for mayor of Nashville. That was something that happened four days ago. It's not something, it's, it's not something I planned. It's not something I planned. It's not something I wanted, but now I'm in it to win it. <laughs> and that's just the way it is. And so um, I've seen a lot happen over the last 30 years. And I've been around academia. I've been at all those schools. So I have five degrees. So I've been all over the place. I've spoken at every kind of institution, including I gave a commencement address to a kindergarten. Uh, no, they were preschoolers. That was a challenge. 
Um, so, I mean, I've been a little, a little bit all over the place, and I've just watched the world change in ways that I would say uh, is shocking that I did not see coming, uh, especially with academia. And I can tell you with political correctness that people started really talking about that in the late 1980s, uh, 1991, I think it was 1991, Dinesh D'Souza wrote uh, Illiberal uh, Education, where he talked about the political left was using affirmative action and multiculturalism to change the language. And so that was like the beginning of a little bit of political correctness. And then in the 1990s, there were a lot of speech co codes on college campuses, and the Supreme Court has regularly uh, struck down speech codes on college campuses. But all of that was taking place back then. But in my years of teaching at uh, Princeton, and then later uh, at Vanderbilt, the changes have been very gradual and then very rapid. In 1999, I accepted the job at Princeton. I came in 2000, and that was around the time I had my Christian conversion experience, and I became a devout believer. And I had this very awkward experience of being um, hired by Vanderbilt in 1998 when I was more of a free spirit. I was more like everyone else except I've always seen the world differently. And so one reason I've been very successful in my career and won national prizes is that I see things other people don't see. And so, but when they hired me, they thought they were hiring a hotshot Princeton professor. When I showed up, I was a born again Christian. <laughs> and so, you know, that didn't go over so well. But the university, I watched it uh, just gradually change and what's happening that we're seeing is that universities are no longer marketplaces of ideas. Uh, the original purpose of a university was to create, preserve, and transmit knowledge. And one way that you create and preserve and transmit knowledge is by knowing things, but also by engaging with people who think differently than you. Like along the way, um, when you engage people that have different viewpoints, usually you know you come up with something new that's needed for creativity. And what's happening on the college campuses today is that they are only allow allowing some viewpoints, not all viewpoints. And it is totally at odds with getting a quality education. And it saddens me that so many of the Christian colleges, and I'm talking about Protestant as well as Catholic, have been infiltrated by the political left, and they are totally, you know, just turning these universities into places where secularism rules. And I believe that we have an obligation to expose the hypocrisy, but to start taking these universities back. And the way we do that is by going inside of the universities. And so you're already there, some of you, as students. And so you can have an impact as a student. You have more power than you think you do. But another thing that's really needed is faculty members. And you think, I can barely make it through um, you know, my undergraduate education. How would I make it through graduate school to become a university professor? I believe that you can make it through. Sometimes you will have to be strategic. And we'll talk about some ways that you can do that. But it is essential that we have young people in the pipeline. Because when this thing falls apart, and it will, because parents are not going to continue 
to spend sixty and seventy thousand dollars a year to have their children's lives ruined. And so the university itself will collapse. It's not going to continually be supported by parents. Uh, think about how your parents feel when they send you off to college. I'm not talking about you, but your siblings. And they come back, they return, and they're spouting, you know, that the leftism, that they have been indoctrinated by the universities. And uh, you see, you know, suicides and the drug abuse and all of these things that are happening on college campuses. And I think part of that's happening is because uh, at the university that I taught at Vanderbilt, they pretty much pushed all the orthodox Christian groups off campus, the ones that really uh, were Bible-believing Christians that practiced their faith, you know, uh, in a more than intellectual fashion, that were not leftists, that were not on board with the LGBT uh, agenda. And uh, my university uh, passed a resolution for student organizations that said that student organizations could not require um, their leaders to share their beliefs or to engage in any type of behavior practices. And based on that policy, it meant that if you were a Christian organization and you had a requirement that to be a leader, you had to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that was not allowed. You could not require a leader to say they believed in Jesus Christ, a leader of a Christian organization. And if someone uh, joined your organization and they were able to come in with enough members and to get uh, a leadership position, they could take it over. And there was nothing you could do. Maybe you could dissolve the organization, but pretty much uh, those organizations were infiltrated. They were taken over. And at Vanderbilt uh, in 2013, about half of the Christian groups uh, lost their student organization representation. And that was about 20 or 30% of the campus, which meant all of those students were paying student fees, but their organizations were not able to get any money for speakers. They were not able to get a room. They were not able to have a table doing orientation. They were not able to use the listserv, yet they were Vanderbilt students. And uh, these things have happened on other campuses. And it's something that um, at public schools, I think it's a lot harder to do, but at private schools, they have more rights to be able to discriminate, and many of them do. And what we find at these campuses is that there is a lot of labeling the political left uses to silence opponents. And I heard someone say that uh, whenever you get close to the truth, that's when the political left calls you a conspiracy theorist. And it's important for us not to allow them to silence us. And I would argue that if you are white, you're going to be called a racist. You might as well get used to it. Get used to the sound of those words. Because no one is immune if you're white from being called a racist. Uh, if you are a Christian and you're conservative, you're fundamentalist. And ew. Uh, if you uh, question immigration, uh, you're a nativist or you're a xenophobe. Uh, say something about traditional marriage and traditional families, you're a homophobe, and so there are all kinds of phobes, Islamophobe, you can go down the list of phobes, and uh, we cannot allow that to silence us or to hurt our feelings or to just, we shouldn't react and try to explain that that's not true. The more you explain, it's, it's like that question, when did you stop beating your wife? 
how do you respond to that? So it's best not to respond, that you really do have to let it roll off your back, or you can answer it with a question, respond and ask the person, well, why do you say that? And uh, there are different ways, but the most important thing is that you should not allow other people's labeling when it's politically based, and you know it is, to silence you, because that's what the political left does. And um, on the college campuses, there's a clear lack of intellect, intellectual diversity taking place across the country. And the lack of intellectual diversity leads to a lack of intellectual rigor. And I have found in my years of teaching that the conservative students were the best students. And they were the best students because they had to think. They had to think about how to navigate their environment. I've also found that students uh, that were leftists, that they come in as freshmen and they have solved every problem in the world. <laughs> really, they've solved every problem. Uh, you, you name an issue and they give you, they regurgitate what they've been indoctrinated with. And so if you're a conservative student on a campus, you have to know their arguments and you have to know the counter and you have to know how to navigate those waters. And so it's good practice for whatever you're gonna do later in life. Censorship, harassment, um, and discrimination. All of that is taking place on college and university campuses. And some of it I have experienced as a faculty member. And I don't know if you know that, um, maybe that was said in the introduction is that I uh, have taken early retirement from Vanderbilt, and I'm pretty much uh, freelancing, but I will be uh, the mayor of Nashville soon, and so I have a job. <laughs> the, but some of the things that uh, happened uh, to me in the years leading up to my taking early retirement uh, was one, the battle over the Christian groups. Uh, 2011 was when the university adopted the policy that said that student organizations could not require their leaders to share their beliefs or engage in certain forms of behavior. Uh, we fought that, and by we, I mean that there were all sorts of the Christian groups on campus, national organizations like the Christian Legal Society, you, uh, um, crew, name, you, you can think of all the conservative groups, um, InterVarsity, what is One Nation or, yeah, and they, yeah, all of those groups uh, stood together and we fought it and 2013 we lost. <laughs> and I had sort of been like the face of the movement, me along with the students. And so what happened was um, in the face of the movement, I was able to get national attention on Fox News. And so, I mean, we were pounding them hard and, um, and the students graduated, right? <laughs> And a new group came in that did not remember what it was like before. And so, um, so that was lost. And the campus, I would say, is not as spiritually healthy as it was before. And what I find is interesting is that that year that all of this started happening, the students had been doing a round-the-clock round prayer for the campus. It was almost like uh, the round-the-clock prayer may have stirred up some type of, of um, I'm going to say demonic forces. I don't know if y'all believe in demons. I do. Um, but that took place. And the year that that rule was adopted, the university recognized Wicca as an official religion. And uh, that meant 
that me as a faculty member, if I had any Wiccans in my classroom and they wanted Halloween off and that was an exam day, it meant that I would have to honor their most high holy day. And uh, <laughs> they share the holy day with the Satanists. And so that took place in 2011 and just I rapidly watched the environment begin to change. So 2011, they adopt the policy. 2013, uh, we lost decisively in the fight to preserve the religious liberty of the Christian groups. And then 2015, the uh, Charlet Hebdo attack happened in Paris. And in the wake of that, I wrote an opinion piece. And I write stuff all the time. And I'm a provocative thinker and a provocative writer. And it was published in the Tennessean. And uh, I criticized Islam. And all hell broke loose. I'd never seen anything like it. And you know, I'm, it, it, was a mo it was one of the most difficult periods of my life. Piece of cake compared to my childhood. No, my childhood was a piece of cake compared to that time period. Um, the first thing that happened was that the university sent out a campus-wide uh, email to all the students, graduate and undergraduate, uh, acknowledging that there had been a threat to the mu Muslim students and that Muslim students were safe and that if anyone needed counseling, the counseling services were available. And then the second thing was um, there was a protest, a campus protest to, um, to denounce my bigotry and my hatred. The, the most visible Christian faculty member to denounce her bigotry and hatred. And then there was like weeks and months I would say of harassment, and I happened to be on sabbatical at the time. And so that made it easier, but it was a very difficult period in my life. It was like I had been punched in the gut. I never, uh, I went through um, depression, I went through counseling, and that was when I first thought about it was time to leave academia. I didn't leave right then, I returned uh, to campus. I taught, I had a great year, great class. A lot of students came because they wanted to support me. And some of them, you know, were from New York and California and places like that, but they wanted me to know that they supported free speech. Many of them were liberal, and I really loved teaching, and I loved my students, and I was always the professor with the open door, and I was always the professor that allowed debate. They knew I was conservative because I was all over the news, and so it's no way that you don't know who I am, and so it's no use pretending I didn't have views. Everyone has views, even those professors that may pretend that they don't. But... Um, it really worked uh, what I was doing in the classroom and the students who protested me, who protested me were not students that had taken my classes. They were students from Rutgers and a University of Massachusetts and just all over the country, uh, they came together. <laughs> and um, it turned out there were probably five of us, conservative professors who were tenured, that were targeted during that same time period. And um, again, it was a dark, part of my life, but after coming out of that, I feel like I can do anything. I can even be mayor of Nashville. <laughs> now, yeah, the, the previous mayor um, uh, had an affair with her bodyguard, and she pleaded guilty uh, to a felony, and, um, and that's why there's a vacancy in a special election that I'm running for.
you know, it's up to us to rescue our culture and it starts with reclaiming our universities. And I don't know, you know, if you've looked at the history of universities, most of them started off as religious universities. Some of them had um, uh, pastors that were the head of the first seminaries, uh, like Princeton, that, be that became universities. And so that, uh, I mean, here we are. And, you know, here we are in this room but I feel very encouraged by the young people that I meet at the organizations that are conservative because I do think uh, that there's enough of us. It's not about the numbers. And as far as conservatives, we have the numbers on our side. The political left has been very effective at infiltrating organizations. And so they uh, have worked their way to the top. And I think that we can do the same thing. And so very quickly, um, I'm going to give you some of my ideas about strategies for fighting back. I think it's important for us to have knowledge and understanding of the political left. And, um, and some of the books, if you haven't read Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals, you need to read it. You need to read Orwell's 1984, uh, Huxley's Brave New World, and Herbert Marcuse. And if you don't know about cultural Marxism, then you need to steep yourself in it. That's important. Uh, you need to be more prepared than your peers in the classroom. And so you have to work harder. Know your rights. Um, and one of the things that you have at every school is a mission statement. Legally, the university is obligated to do what they promise you. You can hold them accountable. Saul Alinsky says, make your enemy live up to his rule book. And so that mission statement is their rule book. And so you need to be able to make them live up to that. Point out the hypocrisy. Um, and you can also um, reframe issues. Like when someone's attacking you, turn it back on them with the questions. And you can do that. And uh, the young lady from New York, uh, she was telling us last night about how skilled she is at exposing the political left by asking very innocent sounding questions that causes them to collapse because they can't answer those questions. Uh, I think you should push for campus debates. Uh, rather than just bringing in a, a single speaker that's gonna preach to the choir, bring in two people, someone from the other side, get the most loony, invite the looniest liberal you can find and the best conservative and set up a debate. Document what's happening in the classroom and how your rights are being uh, infringed on. You do have rights. I mean, it's wrong. It's against the Constitution. It's against the law. Uh, it's against uh, the university's mission statements for you to be discriminated against. And so you have rights as conservative students. And so you need to band together in your classes, document everything. And then there are support groups, the Foundation for Individual, Individual Rights in Education, Campus Reform, College Fix, Freedom Acts, Liberty Council, ACLJ, um, American Center for Law and Justice. And these things that I'm giving you very quickly, I can put these in an email for you all later. And I want to get off the stage so that the book signing can begin. Uh, but I will stand here and take individual questions. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you.